0: I'm Bo, and I'm so happy to be here. It's super fun. Um, I have been thinking this morning about the things that divide us as a nation and the things that make us just different as people. And the one thing, I know there are lots of things even in this room that we maybe wouldn't agree on. We're not the same kind of people. But the one thing that I know does unify all of us this morning, at least the one thing I know we all have in common is that you are the kind of people who go to church on a holiday. And that's very cool, I'm impressed. Pat your own self on the back. Um, I've been fascinated recently with where you come from, where people come from, and ancestry. And my husband and I were talking recently, I was cooking and and we love to cook, and he asked me what kind of things my mom made when I was growing up that I liked. And I told him well she had this one cookbook that that it was so my parents were raised Mennonite and so she had the Mennonite community cookbook and all Mennonite women that I knew had that cookbook and cooked out of it religiously it was important to our whole potluck situation. And I was like, man, I would just give anything to have that cookbook because they are the best cooks. And my wonderful husband, a couple of weeks later, presented me with this gift and he had tracked it down and bought it for me. And I know he's really nice. And uh, wow, good applause for Cliff, that's cool. Um, and so I got the cookbook and I said, you know what? Let's do a dinner party and let's cook all recipes out of this book. And people will be amazed and astounded at our amazing Mennonite cooking. And we sat down and we started looking through the recipes. And we're like, well, there's that one and that one. And we get about 20 pages in and we have to admit to one another, this is terrible. This is terrible. Like this was written in 1950 and there weren't very many good ingredients then, I think, because every recipe is some variation on meat, salt, lard, cream and mushroom soup. It's just awful. And then some really weird things with Jello that I'm still not sure I can talk about. Um, it's just, it's, a, it's bad recipes. And, and I'm telling you, I would have stuck by those recipes. I would have sworn to you. I would have bet my cooking life on the fact that those recipes would get us there. These are our family legacy recipes, but it turns out they're trashy. It turns out they're not good for you at all. And I, a couple of days later, was in kind of a, a conflict, a relational conflict, and I responded in a way that I, I thought about and was triggered later, and I thought about that dumb cookbook, and I realized the way that I responded in that kind of conflict is a recipe. It's something that I have carried with me for years and years. It's something that I learned in situations and over time and experience. And it makes sense in my head because it's the only recipe I have, but I need to let go of it and find something new because that one's just trashy. And so that's a little bit what we're looking at today As we've looked at these people in the wilderness And you're almost done. You're almost out of the wilderness. Next week, you get to go free. You get your punch card. It's all filled. Five wilderness experiences for you. We looked at Jesus in the wilderness. We looked at Moses in the wilderness and Naaman in the wilderness. And today, we're looking at a lady that we don't talk about much. And when we do talk about her, we talk a little like she's an interloper in the narrative of God. We talk a little bit about Hagar like she doesn't really belong there. Like maybe she caused trouble, like maybe she's got a weird backstory and we just talk about Abraham and Sarah and the promised generation and all of those things. But Hagar is a brilliant wilderness story because in the wilderness, God rewrites what Hagar has known as truth. And God shows her something better, a better way to live, and makes her an incredible promise. So we're going to go right through this story, all the way through, and we're going to talk about it as we go. It starts with this in Genesis 16. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. So they've been promised a child, as you probably remember. Clifford, my glasses right there. Are they not? I'm going to have to just not see this time. It's okay. (laughs) Um, They've been promised a legacy. and, And Sarah says in this scripture, God hasn't delivered. God has not shown up. And she says, you know what? I think we can make it happen ourselves. We could use a slave for that very purpose. We could take what God has promised and do something else and make it happen on our own. And then Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. She slept, he slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, You're the best. Thank you. Thank you. I can see. It's a miracle. Um, Then Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Please notice how... In this whole narrative, we're seeing these little bits of identity of Hagar. She's a slave. She's a foreigner. She has no power in the situation. She isn't a servant of Abraham and Sarah's God. And so all she knows about their God is what she's experienced at their hands. Then the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, she answered. So this is the first time in this story that Hagar is ever called by her name. Sarah calls her my slave. Abraham calls her Sarah's slave. Everyone calls Hagar by bits of her identity. Uh, But the most probably negative part of her identity but when God comes to her he calls her by name and a couple of weeks ago Pastor Brad talked about Moses in the wilderness and he said every time God speaks he starts with grace and I would propose to you that perhaps the most uh, fundamental piece of grace God can start with is your name that he knows your real name now the name Hagar is interesting because it means forsaken, but it actually is a Hebrew name, not an Egyptian name. So it could be that when Hagar was bought or captured or whatever to be Abraham and Sarah's slave, that her name was changed. And so something in her backstory, no matter who gave her this name, something in her backstory caused her to be named forsaken. Forsaken. This is the identity she brings with her into the wilderness. This is who she thinks she is. But God comes to her, calls her by name, and then says, where have you come from and where are you going? And I love it when God asks questions in the Bible because he doesn't have to. Right? He doesn't have to ask anybody anything. And yet he does. In fact, Jesus in the New Testament asks over 300 questions. He, uh, we often look at this, especially times in the wilderness, like this is my chance to get an answer. This is my chance to get my questions answered. I demand an answer of God. And really, God is not so much, he's not so much spit an answer out at you. He's like, ask questions. Jesus was asked 183 questions in the New Testament. You know how many he answered directly? Three. Three questions. All the rest of them he answered with more questions But we really like it. In fact, my husband and I have three rules when we fight. I mean, in the case we ever do fight, we have these rules in place. Um, Be kind, be curious, don't interrupt. And I just think that even if we only hold on to be curious, we won. Because it's so much easier to tell people what you want them to think and what you want them to know and to tell them why they shouldn't feel what they feel than it is to listen to why they feel what they feel. And so God comes to Hagar and says, I want to know where you're going. I want to know where you've come from and where you're going. And if you become a friend to someone else in the wilderness, maybe you could do the same thing. Ask some questions. And so Hagar answers one of the questions. She says, I've come from my mistress, Sarah. She essentially says, I've come from the condition of desperation. I've come from a place of pain. And for, for Hagar to run in this era, a, a slave who has no power on her own, who has no husband with her, who is a woman, who is uh, owned by someone else, for her to run, this is not an escape. This is a suicide mission. She is not gonna survive in the wilderness on her own, but she has left what she considers desperation to her only hope, not knowing where she's gonna go. And oftentimes, I think in the wilderness, we just don't see what's on the other side of it. But God always offers hope. He always does. He always knows there's a next. There's another place to go. There's a new place to find. And if you are surrounded by people in your wilderness who are telling you you're too far gone, you'll never change, things things will never improve, you'll never get out of it, politely excuse them. Show them the exit from your wilderness because they don't belong there because God will always give you hope. The God of all grace, the God of all hope, the God of all future will always speak grace into your future, even in, especially in the wilderness. And so the angel knows what is going on with Hagar, and he knows where she's come from. And God is always working to restore and redeem us to himself, always. It's not always immediate, but it's always in development. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. This is not great news. She has run from desperation And now God tells her the direction that you're looking for is go back. But he tells her to go back to an old situation in a new way. Go back submissive. Go back with a different attitude. Go back differently and go back with my promise of blessing. Go back knowing you're not alone. In fact, when Abraham, when the angel says this, he effectively takes Abraham and Sarah out of the picture. They're not going to be the boss of your legacy anymore. He doesn't say, I will give, he doesn't say they will give you or your husband will give you or somebody else will give you. He says, I will give you. You and I have a deal. He tells her there is a promise back there if she'll turn around and go back in a new way. Um... And this is really an amazing thing because when Hagar hears these words from God, she is given a promise that only three other people in the Bible are given. She is not a patriarch. She is not a man. She is not a Jew. And God stands in front of her and makes a covenant blessing with her. You are going to be the mom of a multitude of people. You're gonna have more descendants than you can count. She's just trying to protect the one little baby in her womb. And he's saying, you're gonna have a million descendants, more than you can count, more than you can imagine. Just go back and submit. And it's, it's easy to look at this and, and feel like, no, Isaac was the chosen one. Isaac the one, is the one that God's gonna bless. But just one chapter later in Genesis 17, God tells Abraham as for Ishmael, I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and I will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers and I will make him into a great nation. Then the angel of the Lord says to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to to a son. You shall name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard your misery. This is really beautiful. God has heard Hagar. Has he heard Abraham and Sarah? Yes, but Ishmael is not the answer to Abraham and Sarah's prayers. Ishmael is the blessing to Hagar. And in this moment, God sees her face to face. And he says, I'm giving you a son. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to weave into his name the promise that I am also your God that I am also your friend, that I have seen you in your desperation, that you're not just a hanger on that you matter, that your life matters and that your, your future matters. And so she receives this great blessing of this child that's gonna come. And God says, I am rewriting your recipe. She was invisible and alone and unloved and fruitful, and you can see it turning to chosen and blessed and favored and protected. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Well, when I had my son in the year 2000, they had a baby shower for me, and all my friends wrote little predictions for his future But no one said, I predict that Joe will be a wild donkey of a man and he will be against everyone and everyone will be against him. Happy baby shower. No, this is a terrible, terrible blessing. I mean, I wouldn't want to hear this about anyone or especially none of my kids. And so on the surface, this is not good news, but it's good news to Hagar. Because the promise that her son will become old and obstinate assures her that he will at least get out of the womb. It assures her that he will at least be born, that life will come. And beyond that, the promise that he will live wild and free when all she's known is slavery is huge. Hagar has only known this life of being chained to the will of other people. And so will Ishmael be opposed at every turn? Yep. Will he be in conflict? Yes. But he will be free. And he will write his own story outside of the wilderness. And so understanding how God is turning things from this time is such a big deal. And then something happens in the story that I think is stunning in its significance. It's something that I can't find anywhere else in the Bible. I can't find anywhere else where someone names God. But this, it says this, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God God who sees me for she said I have now seen the one who sees me that is why the well was called it is still there between Kadesh and Bered so Hagar bore Abram a son and Abram gave him the name Ishmael Um, and Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael so Hagar sees God and God sees her And before she's only heard about this God from Abraham and Sarah. Now she has this personal moment with him. And Hagar is Egyptian and they had lots and lots of gods. They had uh, the god Ra, who was god of the sun. Horus, god of vengeance. Hathor, the goddess of motherhood. But the, the top dog of all the Egyptian gods, the king of kings, the god that was like Zeus to the Greek or Jesus to us, the top dog was named Ammon-Ra, and, and it meant the hidden one. So the, the only backstory, the recipe for God that Hagar has known is that the most powerful God is the most hard to spot. He is hidden and distant and unconcerned with your life. And now she has this face-to-face encounter with the God who sees her. And she gives him the name. The only thing maybe that she knows about him, all I know is that he saw me and he heard me and he promised me he would keep seeing me and hearing me. The well is still known by that today. It's, um, the name of that well is the God who lives and sees. And, it, and so when this is written, Moses writes Genesis about 400 years after this event, and he says this well is still known by that today. Curious, how did this well become known by that? It's only Hagar and the angel in that situation. It becomes known by that to everyone and sticks for 400 years because Hagar must have told everyone. She must have told everyone about the God who saw her, about the God who turned her around in the wilderness. I mean, she's going to run into another wilderness situation down the road, and it's going to be really difficult, and she's going to have to restart her life all over again. But still, the testimony of Hagar lives on, not only in the name of the well, but in the name of her son. God did something in Hagar that would last for generations a work that lasts and sometimes in the middle middle of our wilderness, especially in the wilderness seasons that feel entirely unfair, like they're not your fault. Somebody else's sin sent you there or somebody else's mistake sent you there or somebody else's neglect sent you there and you land there not knowing how you got there. You don't know how the business fell apart or how the marriage ended or how you lost the person you love or how you ended up in in a situation you never saw coming. And it can be so tempting to think this is the end. Nothing can come from this except survival. But believe that God is working in the places that you cannot see. Believe that he's working to do something not just for now and not just for you, but for then and for later and for many. The, the, the spoils that we carry out of the wilderness, I think are the most precious and the most valuable to the whole world around us. It matters so much. Hagar realizes that she's not invisible. She's not nameless. She's not just a slave. Now she's actually a player in the purpose of God. She's got skin in the game. God has seen her. She has seen him. And she is a part of the destiny. And So God has been unveiling to Hagar in the wilderness who he is and who she is. He's been sort of showing her these places. And that unveiling process, I think, is what's so important for us when we land in a wilderness season. Wilderness season, by the way, we have defined as any prolonged experience of pain or loneliness or silence. And so in this time, God is like taking these layers off so that she can see who he is. And I think that's what happens inside of our wilderness seasons if we'll let it, but it also is hard. It, it, is, it is hard. It's hard because in order to get a hold of the truth of who he is, we have to let go of the truth of who he isn't. We have to begin to let go of some of the recipes that we hold and the identities that we've claimed and the things that we put in between us and who he really is. And that can feel like we're losing everything. In fact, the New Testament talks a lot about revelation. It talks a lot about the revelation of God to the Gentiles. And it sounds cool, but the Greek word for revelation is apocalypsis. It's this shaking. It's this the fundamental foundational change in what you believe and what you've always known and how you've always cooked a pot roast. It's that kind of thing where it's like in order to grasp on to what I'm discovering to be true of who God is, I'm going to have to let go of other things. I had a friend who faced physical problem after physical thing after physical thing. She was just so, so sick. And I remember one day she told me, it's okay. I made a deal with God about 10 years ago. You can do anything you want to me, but don't touch my kids. And I see the nobility in that kind of idea, but it's wrong. It's built on a lie that God has to hurt someone. And she picked it up from somewhere and it got into her bloodstream and it became a part of what she believed. Just hurt me. Don't touch my kids. There's something in her life that said, I think I love them more than you do. And in order to to, to get a hold of who God really is, his overwhelming, unconditional love and his protection of us and his goodness toward us, we're going to have to let go of things like that. Things where we've labeled him a petulant father rather than an overwhelmingly loving dad. We're going to be willing to let go of things that were built in hard times or built for survival or created in us something that isn't working in our lives anymore. I've had a recipe in my life. I told you last time I spoke that I lost my husband in 2015 after a long battle with ALS. And so in my world, husbands die. That's just a fact for me. And it's part of the recipe. And so when my husband is late to text back or something, my automatic mind will go to. My brain runs ahead to keep me safe, and it says, he's dead. You're the loser again. And there is this fundamental thing where that harbors a mistruth about God being able to take care of me. And so when you land in the place of the wilderness, it is your opportunity to ask three of the most important questions you can ask ever. The first question is, is there something about you that I believe that is not true? Do I believe that you're the harsh taskmaster? Do I believe that you're the mean dad? Do I believe that, that, that there is something in you that is waiting for me to be good enough to be loved? What am I believing about you in this situation that is not true? The second question is, is there something about myself I'm believing that is not true? Do I believe that I am always gonna be a victim of my pain? Do I believe that I am always going to be overlooked or unloved? Do I believe that I'll always be defined by poverty or sickness or whatever the thing is that is so far defined your life? What am I believing about myself that isn't true? And then the biggest question of all is what is the prevailing truth? What truth is bigger than all those things? Because like I said, uh, my truth is sometimes husbands die. So it's just true. But the prevailing truth for me is this. I am safe in the love of God no matter what. That's, that's just my bullet. I am safe in the love of God no matter what. If I lose it all tomorrow, I'm safe in the love of God. If our country falls apart tomorrow, I'm safe in the love of God no matter what. If my business falls apart tomorrow, I'm safe in the love of God no matter what. This is the prevailing truth. And it trumps every other truth to the grave and beyond. That truth trumps every truth and that becomes my wilderness church. That becomes my belief system and honestly you can throw out all the other doctrine in that moment because that's all I can build my life on is I am safe in the love of God no matter what and that's what the wilderness will buy for you if you'll let it. This moment to see God face to face and to see yourself as he sees you and to take from him a truth that will restore some of the broken places and build back some of the things that the enemy has wanted to destroy. I don't know where you are today in the wilderness or in the waiting And maybe you're in somebody else's wilderness season. Maybe you're a friend in the wilderness. If you're a friend, I just have a a little bit of a tip. Don't rush them out of the wilderness. Let let people spend the time where they want to spend. Lots of people are in the wilderness of doubt right now. And I know we want to answer them out of it. We want to apologetics them out of it. We want to Bible them out of it. We want to faith them out of it. But we got to let people do their time in the wilderness. God can be trusted there. Don't rush him out of it. Let God move and work and speak. And don't over answer. We don't have to be the Christian answer guy. Nobody needs that from us right now. We need to be the Christian listening people. I wanna be curious. I wanna ask questions. I wanna say, tell me more how you feel. How did you come to that conclusion? And then always, speak hope because the God of all hope can be trusted. He can be trusted with your wilderness and he can be trusted with your child in the wilderness. I know that one. He can be trusted with the pain that you're carrying this very moment. So I'd love to pray with you this morning. In fact, could we just take a second with the lover of our soul and just Close your eyes if you'd like, and kind of shut yourself in with him. Make your own little wilderness chair. And let's ask him the question, is there anything that I'm believing about you that isn't true? And is there anything that I believe about myself that isn't true. And then this is the big ticket question. What is the prevailing truth? Holy Spirit, we're listening. We're listening to your voice and your heart and your word. And we're listening to your character. And we trust you. We trust you with the happy times and the hard times and all the road in between until you call us home. In your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me for a minute? And I want to speak a little benediction over you. I ran into this this morning and it just made me so happy. It's just so good. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God who sees you set you up and defend you, send you help from the sanctuary and support, refresh and strengthen you from Zion. May he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. I hope you have the best 4th of July ever. I love you and it's been so fun to be with you today.